Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hello, and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter, angler, and forager. Stick with this and who knows, maybe we will learn something together. Okay, so I'm sitting here and I have Stan Tequila on the line and we are going to be talking foraging as well as some other things to keep you occupied while you may be in quarantine. So Stan, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Well, hi, Luke. How are you doing? Um, so as you said, my name is Stan Tequila, and I'm an author and a naturalist and a wildlife photographer. Um, where do I start, huh? There, um, I have a degree from the University of Minnesota in natural history, so uh, which basically means I'm a, I'm a wildlife biologist who teaches. And, um, and that's what basically, oftentimes when I introduce myself as a naturalist, people oftentimes will go, They'll, they'll kind of envision somebody running through the woods naked, you know, <laughs> and I'll have, to, I'll have to remind them that that's a naturist and that a naturalist is an educator, an educator about the great big world around us. And, you know, it may be about plants, it may be about animals, it may be about, <clears throat> excuse me, the sky, the rocks, whatever it may be. And, um, and it's kind of the big picture of things. And <clears throat> I, I educate through a variety of different you know, channels, if you will. First, I'm the director of the uh, Starring Lake Nature Center in Eden Prairie, Minnesota. And uh, so we have thousands of school kids and uh, uh, summer campers, you know, kids that come for camp and learning about nature and things like that at the Nature Center. And that's a, a big avenue. Um, I'm also write a syndicated newspaper column. And that column goes across about nine or 10 states. Uh, with about three quarters of a million readers. And I believe um, you're familiar with uh, the Outdoor News, which is one of the publications I write for. Yep. 
And uh, I do uh, a variety of uh, uh, radio shows. So I've got um, uh, a couple of shows that I do in a variety in different places, uh, Grand Forks, North Dakota, Fargo, uh, Moorhead, uh, out of the Twin Cities area. Uh, so things like that. And uh, I also do outdoor news radio, which is um, kind of a fun show that uh, comes out daily. And then uh, I, in addition to kind of the, uh, you know, the newspaper column and uh, teaching at the nature center and all that, I write books. So um, believe it or not, as a kid uh, <laughs> growing up in uh, the Chicagoland area, I dreamed of writing nature books. That was just uh, something I always wanted to do. And um, so even as a kid, I wanted, I, I had a three ring binder and I would write handwrite in the notes because I was convinced somehow that I would be able to go out and write a book and teach people about the nature in their own backyard that they didn't know about. And uh, so I would write, you know, in this book and handwrite all the stuff in there. And then I would take pictures and I would, you know, they'll take the prints and glue them in there and all that stuff. And so um, I continued on doing that all the way through my youth. And then about uh, a little over 30 years ago, I don't know, 31, 32 years ago, I um, met up with a couple who was starting a brand new publishing company called Adventure Publications out of Cambridge, Minnesota. And um, they took a chance on me and brought me on as one of their very first authors that they had at this publishing house, this new publishing house. And I got to realize my lifelong dream of writing a, a nature book. And I was thrilled. And then uh, nobody said stop. So I kept going. And um, here we are 31 years later, and I just hit my 200th book. And um, it's, been a, it's been a pretty good ride. You know, that's been a, a big part of what I do is the, is the uh, writing uh, for those books. And then I'm a wildlife photographer also. I have no training in the wildlife photography at all. It just kind of came about as a necessary evil because I wanted to illustrate certain things in my books. And so, you know, long ago, back in the film days, um, you know, I started photographing and learned how, how to take good wildlife uh, images and uh, kind of continued on with that. So. Um, a little bit of everything in there just to, you know, it's, it's, it's classic. I also uh, do um, uh, record audio sounds for, well, a variety of different things. I, I sell them as uh, ringtones and as uh, ways in which to, for people to relax, uh, educational CDs on how to identify different birds, so on and so forth. So, and like anything, it takes, you know, four or five different revenue streams in order to make one living. So you got to do, four, you know, four or five jobs to make one living. And yeah. that's just kind of how it goes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so I know a lot of your books, and I'm pretty sure you've wrote a book about birds for all 50 states. Is that? Uh, yeah, all, all except for uh, Hawaii and Nevada. So um, Nevada, because there's not enough people there in the state to buy the books, and Hawaii, because uh, the publisher really never had a distribution chain for, you know, to getting it to Hawaii. So I never did that. But uh, all the other states I've got covered. So if you've got a small little field guide called the birds of whatever state you happen to be in, um, that's the books that I write. Uh, I started these books um, about 25 years ago. And I've written field guides for, uh, well, I've done field guide for the birds for every state except for Nevada and Hawaii. And then 
but I've gone on to do other field guides too. I did a field guide for the trees of many states um, and uh, wildflowers, uh, the mammals of uh, of these states. So, and there's yeah, you can find most of this stuff. I have an, uh, an Amazon author page too. So people can go to Amazon and go to the author pages and, and find my name and they can see it. Or just simply just type in my name on Amazon and you'll see. Right. Uh, there's quite a few uh, quite a few publications there. And then children's books as well. I mean, yeah. You've kind of done <laughs> quite a few books here. Yeah. So I've done a lot of kids' books. Uh, I enjoy the children's books because <clears throat> in... Um, Compared to doing a field guide, which is so labor intensive, I mean, it is just horrendous the amount of work that has to go into these things. Uh, the children's books are a nice uh, reprieve from that, and uh, I can have more fun with it, and I can uh, write, you know, um, and, and, but the difference with between my kids' books and other kids' books is my information is technically accurate. So as a wildlife biologist, I kind of make sure that everything is technically correct. I don't, you know, I don't want to be putting out information that's not true. And so in the back of all my uh, kids' books, I have this um, educational material that is meant for a parent or a grandparent or a guardian or whoever it may be that they can read also and uh, teach the children, uh, you know, and pass along that information also. I like that. I really do. Um, it's just one of those things. So many of the books that I read to my children are so inaccurate about animal yes. noises and different things and and yeah. uh, we recently bought some new books they're called smile outside and they're uh two percent for conservation um and you know so two percent of the money and two percent of their time goes towards conservation efforts mm -hmm. and different things and it's just a breath of fresh air to get a book like yours or get a book like theirs and be able to read something to the kid to where they're actually learning something like uh the most recent one was antlers and it's actually accurate on what animal has antlers or what animal has horns versus antlers and things that people, you know, people just mix things up all the time. And so many people yeah. just don't know the actual facts about nature. And it's just kind of yeah. annoying to somebody who does. And now you're trying to read a book to your kid and they're getting a misconception of things. And that's, yeah. that's refreshing. I like that. Yeah, good. I'm glad you appreciate that because it's funny. Um, and you brought up antlers and horns because that's one of my pet peeves. Uh, one of the radio shows that I do on a regular basis, um, a couple guys, the host of the show and all that are, um, uh, they're, you know, they're, you know, classic, uh, you know, hunters, they, you know, but they've, they've learned from other hunters and they, and not, I'm not bashing hunters here, but uh, they tend to get things mixed up or they tend to use slang or they tend to use um, colloquial words that are not correct. So uh, they'll often say, Oh, check out the horns on that deer. <laughs> and people like me just cringe. And it's like, no, and they're not horns. And it's not just a technical, <laughs> it's not just a technicality. There is a huge difference between horns and antlers. And um, so I spend a lot of time trying to educate them or re-educate them about uh, things. And that's an always, that's a fun uh, way for people to learn too, to get it right, you know? And uh, so it's, it, but it's, because it's, to get to be accurate on it makes you um, a better person. It really does. I and mean, when you're technically accurate on things, then you're, you're going to have a better, you know, overall uh, argument or, you know, point or whatever it may be. So, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about being in the 
uncertain, strange times that we're living in right now with what's going on in the world and most of us being at home. What are some things as far as bird watching or birds that we can look at and look out our window, maybe some games or something that uh, we can play with our kids, something that's common to the throughout the United States, I guess I would say. So at this time of year, um, so we got early spring, late winter, early spring. Um, there is so much going on, and I think it's important for people to uh, get outside and to, you know, uh, get some sunshine, get some fresh air. And when you do, if you stop and take a moment to look, there are so many signs of spring all around. It is um, everything from the birds that are singing, um, the migration that is happening at the moment. Uh, Sandhill cranes are showing up all over the place right now. They've spent their winters down south and now they're coming up into the northern states and moving through. We've got you know, our cardinals are singing on territory. And uh, one of the most more interesting things about cardinals is the uh, not only the male sings a song, but the female also sings a song and uh, they sing in duets back and forth. And oftentimes when they sing this, they'll mirror each other in uh, the sound. So the sound sounds exactly the same. Uh, but if you record them and look at their songs uh, in a spectrograph, in a sonogram, so you can actually see what they're doing, uh, you can see the differences between them. So be when you and I hear it, we hear the same thing, but uh, technically they are not singing the same things. They're singing different things. And presumably uh, the male and the female cardinal can tell that difference and they're able to, um, uh, it means something to them too. So there's a lot going on there. Uh, you can look out your back window at this time of year and see squirrels chasing each other. So the Eastern gray squirrel, this is the common squirrel that most people have in their yards. And they're chasing each other around. This is not just aggression. This is actually the mating chase. Males are chasing females for the mating season. And uh, so there's things going on there. Chipmunks have just come out of hibernation and they're running around. So there's a lot of things that can be seen if you stop and take a look. And then more importantly, try to see these things for what they are. Try not to uh, interpret them with human judgment, human um, kind of expectations and things like that. Because we almost always, when we do things like that, we get it wrong. We don't get it right when we uh, try to look at something and try to match it up to our own human experience. Uh, you, you can learn from it by just simply watching it and learning and, and watching their behavior and taking it from there. Does that, does that make any sense to you? Absolutely. I, uh... I try and teach my children the same thing that um, humans are way more complex than animals and animals pretty much have just uh, a few basic needs and that's survival and nutrition and mating. And uh, obviously uh, the care for their young for mammals and things like that. And um, yeah, so that makes sense to, to look at it through that light and uh, just notice their behaviors are precise actions, actions that are followed through those needs. Yeah, so I would I would say you're you're um, mostly right there, but um, perhaps uh, if you looked at it slightly different with it. Um, so I just pointed out the fact that a very common bird, the northern cardinal, uh, is a bird that most everybody's familiar with, right? And yet it sings the male and the female both sing a song, and even though they sound the same, 
they are technically different and they can tell the difference. So I would argue that it's just the opposite, that the, uh, the birds and the animals have more complex uh, than you and I have. For example, uh, you and I see in three different colors, red, red, green, and blue, and that's it. Uh, so that gives our seven colors of light, the Roy G. Biv, you know, this is the R-O-Y-G-B-I-V. And we see those seven colors of light because we have three cones in our eyes that, that receive green, blue, and green, or, or a red light. That's it. Birds have four cones in their eyes that allows them to see in the RGB plus ultraviolet. So they can see things that we cannot see. So I would argue that people try to interpret things and see things uh, as like a human would and not give the possibilities that there are more things beyond that. For example, uh, have you ever wondered how uh, birds that look the same, like crows or blue jays or um, uh, sandhill cranes and all that, who look, the males and the females look the same. Do you ever wonder how they tell the difference between each other? No, I never thought of it. <laughs> well, <laughs> they, like, let's, just, let's just concentrate on blue jays, for example. Blue jays is a common backyard bird. People can look out their window and see it, right? Yep. And uh, they look they look the same, but presumably they got to be able to tell the difference between the boys and the girls. I mean, what do they do? Fly over to each other, lift up their tails, look underneath and ask them, you know, or <laughs> I mean, what do they do? And, and, the, and the answer is, is that under UV light, they reflect different patterns and those patterns are seen by uh, the birds. So they see just fine which one's a male and which one's a female. It's you and me. We can't see it, but we presume it to be one way, and we almost always presume it to be the wrong way. Hmm. So we're almost always inaccurate when we try to project our human uh, kind of our, our ability to see, our ability to hear, our ability to smell, our ability to taste, uh, and worse yet, our human emotions. We try to project those onto uh, uh, the wildlife. We're almost always wrong and because we're not doing it. So but if you observe wildlife more in a way of just observing and taking it in and trying not to kind of figure it out, because, you know, as people, what do we want to do? We always want to figure out, you know, why, why do they do justification for this or justification for that? And oftentimes there isn't anything like that. It's more of a kind of, this is, they're doing it for, a different reason that we would not even think of. And uh, I could go on and on about all these different types of things. So it's, it's just a, a different way of looking at it. And when you, when you open up your mind to those types of possibilities, then all of a sudden things start to become more clear to you. And it's a really interesting world out there. It is. It is. I'd like just observing without, like you said, without uh, trying to make it relatable or make it anything and just, take it for what it is. And most of the time you can actually learn from that more so. Exactly. Than, yes. Um, so I got a question for you, Stan, how, how did you get to, um, how did you get to learn all the plants or the different uh, flora and fauna that you did? Like what led you to that, to where now you wrote a book quite some years ago, actually the first edition of start mushrooming the reliable way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, um, for some 
odd reason, even as a kid, I was interested in this stuff. Um, I can't remember a time in when when I wasn't fascinated by nature, when I wasn't fascinated by or wanting to know when I went for a walk, what are all these plants? What are all these mushrooms? What are all these birds? So on and so forth. I just had that in me. And so from a very young age, I always was trying to identify all the plants around me. And so I would, um, you know, I had old golden guides and, uh, you know, some Peterson guides and things like that. Some of the original field guides that came out in the mid 1900s. And I used those books to try to figure out what the heck I was seeing. And uh, so it was kind of a lot of that was self-taught. And then later on, I went to the University of Minnesota and, and uh, kind of a fairly broad degree as a, as a naturalist from um, a variety of different colleges. So from the College of Natural Resources and the College of Biological Sciences, and was able to kind of pull the whole thing together, uh, you know, to be because as a naturalist, you're kind of a, a kind of a jack of all trades. You you know a lot about a little about all the different things, but you're really a master of nothing. And uh, so that's kind of the direction I've always been. And for some reason, you know, I can uh, uh, I can I can meet a plant and meet a bird and it will stick with me forever. I'll remember its name. I'll remember everything about it. But, um, you know, you and I will hang up and 10 minutes later, I won't remember your name, you know? <laughs> you know? So, I don't, funny. yeah, it's just who I am. I'm just yep. bent that way. You know, it's just, and it's, it's not like I, it's not like I couldn't, I couldn't change it even if I wanted to, you know, it's just how it is. And so it's just one of those things that I don't know. And it's been a good, but it's been a good career for me. It's been a good, uh, kind of a good run, if you will. So let's talk about, um, especially with people being cooped up and not wanting yeah. to go to grocery stores and social distancing <laughs> and whatnot right now. It's crazy. I can't believe uh, we're living in this. But so in your book, you have seven mushrooms yeah. that are considered the safe seven. Yeah. Would you like to name them or do you want me to or... Well, let me just start out by saying that there's over a million types of mushrooms. Um, and, and mushrooms, by the way, are just the fruiting body of a fungus. So um, we'd have to kind of dive into a little bit more about, about you know, the, the actual organism itself if we wanted to. But um, uh, And so no one person can be an expert in all <laughs> types of um of, of mushrooms. You just can't. There's just too many to know. You know, there's with a million different species out there, it's pretty hard to kind of figure out what the heck is going on. Right. Right. So what I tried to do is there are people who want to know, like me, who want to know all the mushrooms. They want to look at all the mushrooms and be able to identify all of them. And then there's other people who want to just collect for the table. They just want to, you know, um, collect some mushrooms to be able to eat. And so what I tried to do was put together a book that would cover the, you know, kind of the three main seasons, spring, summer, and fall for mushroom hunting, and give you uh, simple, common, edible mushrooms that don't have a lot of poisonous lookalikes and uh, stop you from killing yourself, basically is it, you know, so that's the bottom line. You know, and, and I settled in on seven. Uh, it used to be in the original edition, I, which I did close to 30 years ago. Um, it was six common mushrooms. And I uh, when I redid the Start Mushrooming book, I added a seventh one to it. And that's the chanterelle. And um, so it's, it's just an extra uh, kind of one more mushroom for you to go out and hunt. Because honestly, 
I don't think most people are interested in going out and identifying all of them. They just want to collect a few things for the table. This basically goes back to a time when I was a child. Um, my father would uh, come home with wild mushrooms that he would collect. Um, my, uh, uh, his parents, so my grandparents are uh, Polish immigrants, and they had that classic European, you know, collect the mushrooms um, uh, type mentality. And he learned it from his uh, folks. And then uh, I kind of learned it from him. And it's been something I've just kind of carried on doing. And it's been, you know, something that's been really fun to do. I think most people are familiar with the morel mushroom. That's our kind of a springtime uh, mushroom. Is that something that you've gone out, uh, Luke? And Yes, and hunted yes I have. Yeah. Absolutely. I love and your success. Hunting. And your success has been how? Uh, fairly high. Um, good. I've got good. a few secret spots, which I will not divulge at this time. <laughs> uh, yes. Yes. And some of them are on ground that is actually close to the public right now. So unfortunately yeah. I won't be able to get out there in a couple of weeks and start looking. So hopefully yeah. this all changes and this, uh, and we're able to go on public ground, but I also have a few, a uh, few private spots that do rather well and, like yeah. I said, I'm not going to give those up because they are the coveted mushroom of all mushrooms. Yeah, they are. And it's really something that it's the hunt. People like that hunt. They like to get out there and, uh, and search for them. And uh, it's a, the morel mushroom is, um, you know, there's uh, probably seven or nine different species of morels, depending on who you talk to uh, about that. And, uh, but they're all share similar characteristics that make them fairly foolproof. I mean, there is uh, some poisonous lookalikes to them, uh, like the gyromitra. Uh, it's a it's a mushroom that comes up later in the year. Sometimes it comes up in the spring, and um, to me, uh, they don't look anything at all like. But I see people routinely make that mistake. They will uh, collect up these gyromitras and uh, thinking it's a kind of an odd morel, and um, uh, which is interesting because these gyromitras have uh, monomethylhydrazine in them. And uh, are you familiar with monomethylhydrazine? Nope, not exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's rocket fuel basically, okay. <laughs> and so, and some people can eat it with no problems whatsoever, and other people eat it and become violently ill, and some people can eat it several times and not have any reactions, and then all of a sudden they'll have a reaction to it. Uh, so this is not something you want to be messing with. Uh, you you won't die from it, but you'll kind of get sick enough where you wish you might die, <laughs> and uh, so it's uh, it's a uh, you got to be careful what you're doing out there. And so what I did was I developed a, like a, a six point checkoff system so that if you can say yes to each of these uh, kind of uh, checkoffs, you can uh, be sure that you've got the right mushroom because it's really, really easy to uh, to kill yourself uh, with mushrooms. And maybe we should talk about mushroom poisoning for a minute because that's it's kind of a gruesome topic, but it's, uh, yes. Yes. it's something that happens. Yeah. Yeah. So with, with mushroom poisonings, we oftentimes see something on television, a movie or a sitcom or something like that, where, you know, somebody takes one bite of the mushroom and they, you know, grasp at their throat and they choke and whatever spit and they fall off their chair and they're dead. Um, and that is like the furthest thing from the truth. Uh, in fact, uh, the vast majority of people who have eaten these deadly poisonous mushrooms like the Ammonita, uh, all have reported it tasted great. And, um, and so <laughs> that, that's our first problem. 
Uh, second problem is, is the main symptoms don't show up until about 72 hours after you've consumed that wild mushroom. So 72 hours is like three days later. I don't know about you, but I have a tough time remembering what I had for breakfast, you know. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, later on, I mean, three days later, it's pretty tough to recall what the heck you're having. And the, those first symptoms are coming about uh, due to liver failure. So the main thing that you're doing is when you eat these ammonite mushrooms, the amnotoxins inside there destroy your liver. And so the very first symptoms you get are symptoms of liver failure. And the treatment for this is a liver transplant. Most people can live about a week or so after eating these deadly mushrooms. And then uh, so about seven, eight days. And if they don't get a liver transplant, they die. And so it's a long drawn out a horrible death that you certainly don't want to do. So um, that's why you got to be really careful. Worse yet, these ammonite mushrooms look almost identical to the store-bought white mushrooms that you buy, you know, in the store, a package of those white button mushrooms. Yes. These ammonites look just like them. And so uh, they're hard to tell apart. Even, even so much so that I don't even mess around with anything that's... Um, uh, that's small and white, or even medium-sized and white, uh, I don't mess around with them at all because they're, you're too close to those ammonites, and it's just too scary. Yeah, I, I, I'm i looking right now at them. Um, so, Are you looking at the death angel? Uh, the, um, yep, the death cap. Yeah. Yep. The death cap, yeah. So it's a pure white mushroom with a single stalk in it. It has um, gills underneath it, just like the store-bought mushrooms. And there's really only a few things different. Uh, one of the things is it grows from a vulva. The vulva is a cup, a cup at the base. And oftentimes that's underground, so you don't see it. Uh, the second difference there is that um, the gills tend to be uh, uh, white on the ammonites, but the gills are pinkish on the store-bought ones. But they both turn dark. Both of the gills turn dark with age. So uh, otherwise, they're, they're pretty darn similar to each other, and it's really kind of hard to uh, tell apart. Yeah, that's a good one to stay away from. Uh, yeah, anything that looks like store-bought mushrooms, stay away from it. Yes, <laughs> yes. So let's talk about um, morels. And so obviously, this is the time of year. Um, typically, people want to look around what type of trees. So generally speaking, depending on what part of the country in, it's more uh the, the month of may so uh, april the end of april beginning of may is when these things are are around and um interestingly morel mushrooms are found globally they're found all over the planet they're not just kind of a north american type of thing and um you can find them associated with different types of trees depending on what part of the country you're in so in the upper midwest we oftentimes associated them with uh dead elm trees so back in the 70s and 80s, uh, Dutch elm disease came through and was killing off a lot of elm trees. That was the heyday for morel mushrooms. I mean, they were just popping up all over the place. And um, uh, nowadays, we still find them associated with dead elms, but we also find them on uh, kind of uh, south-facing hillsides. Um, I've found them growing in my lawn. Uh, just I was mowing the lawn and there's one, you know, popped out. So yep. uh, they are where they grow. That's that's kind of a good <laughs> saying for that, you know. Yep. Um, other places, they're associated with ash trees. So, for example, in Illinois, uh, they're associated with ash trees. 
and um, and and sometimes they're associated with uh, prickly ash, which is, by the way, not related to the ash tree at all. So there's uh, uh, different ways uh, of finding them. Uh, generally speaking, they're they they're like wolves. They travel in packs. And uh, so if you see one, there's oftentimes many more around. The trick to finding these things is to get down low and look across the ground. Don't look for them kind of standing upright and then looking down at them because they're harder to see. But if you kind of crouch down, look out in front of you, scan in front of you, you'll be able to see these things. One of the tricks that I've always found is that if you take a, a picture of a morel or um kind of some symbol of a morel and look at it first, kind of stare at it, get your eyes fixed on it and get your brain thinking about that size, the shape, the color and all that stuff. When you look for them, they'll pop out to you more because once you find one, oftentimes all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, and if you look, there's another and then there's another and then you realize there's one right between your feet, you know, <laughs> and, uh, so there's different uh uh, they're kind of all over the place. And I always like to say they're pretty sneaky. And uh, usually when you find one, you look for more. That's that's my my biggest takeaway or anybody that's listening to this. If you find a morel, stop in place right where you are. Yeah, because don't chances move. Yeah. are you're going to move, you're going to step on them. They're all around. Yeah. If you find one, you're going to find many. Exactly. That's exactly it too, yeah. So how do you know you found a morel? Um, well, the one of the main things you can do is the, the the cap is covered with pits and ridges. So they got these kind of flat ridges on all over it and with little pits all over it. And if you take a knife and cut it lengthwise and open it up, the inside of it is hollow like a straw. And that's very important because the gyromitras, this is something we were talking about earlier that can be confused with the morel. Uh, they have a cottony material inside or a, or a solid stem. And so that's one of the big dead giveaways um, between the two of them. And people make that mistake all the time. Um, quite a few years ago, I was at a mushroom festival in um, <clears throat> Michigan. And uh, there was a local restaurant that was offering like a three-course dinner with uh, morel mushrooms. And uh, so I was sitting down with some of the most notable mushroom people around. and. Um, we were all having this dinner together with our spouses and uh, you know, we were having this three course meal all featuring morel mushrooms. And uh, when my dinner came out to me, which would, I think it was a chicken breast or something like that, they sat it down right in front of me. I took one look at it and was like, <laughs> that's a gyromitra mushroom <laughs> on top of my chicken. Wow. And it was of all the people to set it in front of, it was like, are you kidding me? This is funny. Uh, called the uh, waiter back and showed it to him, explained it to him. The cook came out and uh, he took a look at it and it was like, you know, dude, you know, you can't, you know, you, you can't be serving up uh, gyromitres. Where'd you get these? And he's like, well, just somebody comes to the back door and they got a bag full and they sold them to us, you know? And oh, wow. uh, so you gotta be real careful in those situations that, uh, you, you know, you're eating the right thing. So. Yes. Wow. That's interesting. <laughs> mm -hmm. So let's talk about the shaggy mane because that's one that you can actually, uh, it, it's more than just in the springtime, right? Yeah, the shaggy mane uh, oftentimes grows in like your lawn. Uh, this is the white, uh, has a conical shaped cap on it with a lot of little shaggy uh, curls on it. And it is uh, an interesting mushroom in that um, 
And maybe this is where we need to back up a little bit and talk to people about wh- what is a mushroom. Um, I mean, do you want to take a, Luke, you want to take a stab at what the heck a mushroom is? What is a mushroom? Uh, yeah, what, like, what's a mushroom? Mushroom is a extension of the mycelium or something that's breaking down the fibers of wood or other organisms within the soil or on a tree. Well, that's a good explanation of <laughs> the fungus, but the mushroom itself, the above ground thing, is oh, actually, I, I, you mean I kind like of mentioned the pollinator it earlier. Or, or the spreader yes. of, yes. Yes. There you go. It's the <laughs> yeah, it's the fruiting body of the fungus. So if the analogy would be this, you've got an apple tree, right? And that apple tree is growing, and at at the right time of year, it needs to reproduce. Okay, because remember, everything in nature it all boils down to just like you said, boils down to you know finding food and reproduction. Those two things, everything's boiled down to that. And so they need to reproduce. This apple tree needs to reproduce. So what does it do? It has flowers. Those flowers are pollinated. And that pollinated flower gives forth to the apple. Inside the apple are the seeds. This is how that tree reproduces itself. So it wants some animal to eat the apple to ingest the seeds, walk away, the seeds pass through the digestive system, they come out the other side, they land on the ground, and boom, a new place for an apple tree to grow. So that's the fruiting body of the apple tree. With with fungus, the mushroom is the fruiting body. It is the part that allows that fungus to reproduce, except the differences are plants have seeds, fungus have spores. They're fundamentally different from each other, okay? Um, and our and the spores tend to be microscopic. You don't see them. And so uh, the morel mushroom comes up, and on those pits and ridges of that mushroom, in those pits are little um, uh, ascomycetes. These ascomycetes are little, like little bat-shaped things that inside of them are spores. And so as long as that mushroom is sticking up above ground, it's giving off spores. It's reproducing. To prove this, simply take your morel mushroom or take, you know, any mushroom like that and lay it on a piece of white or black paper and then put a bowl over the top of it to stop the wind currents from carrying away the spores, and then wait about 12 hours. When you open that, lift it up, and take a look at it, what you're going to see is hundreds of millions, if not trillions, of spores that have fallen down onto the paper. And you can see this. And so that's what the fruiting body is for, for casting off these, um, these spores. Now, getting back to the shaggy mane, which is what we started talking about there. The shaggy mane is there. It's a fruiting body, but it needs to spread its spores. How does it do that? It auto-digests. It breaks itself down and becomes liquid to the point where it's a black liquid, almost like black ink. And whatever plant is underneath it becomes coated with this black liquid, this mess, if you will. And then an animal comes along a grazer grazes on that plant, ingests all those spores, it passes through the digestive system, and guess what? Boom, you got new shaggy mane mushrooms growing at the, at the new place, wherever it was dropped. 
landfill. There's all sorts of ways in which these fungi are trying to reproduce, just like any other animal or insect or bird or whatever. Yep. I find it. I've never actually found one or actually, well, maybe I found them, but never hunted the shaggy mane myself. But I plan on it. I plan on doing it this spring and summer. So it's an interesting species, the shaggy mane. Uh, you can oftentimes find it right in your lawn. It's a very common lawn uh, type thing, unless you're using a lot of chemicals and things like that. Um, you certainly don't want to be harvesting mushrooms out of your lawn if you're using, you know, some lawn spray service type of thing that's going to, you know, be uh, putting down a lot of different chemicals. That would be unhealthy. Um, and uh, it's a mushroom that since it auto digests, since it breaks itself down, as soon as you collect it, you have to cut it up, cook it and eat it. Otherwise, it breaks, you know, break down, turn to black ink, right? <laughs> and uh, make a heck of a mess in your refrigerator. Uh, the only way to get around that is if you took like a, uh, of, of the bottom part of an egg container and uh, take the mushroom and you set it in that egg container upside down so that its stalk is sticking straight up in the air and the cap is down inside that little cup. And then um, it won't auto digest at that point. So that's kind of an interesting thing. You have to be a little bit careful with the uh, shaggy mane. Uh, the genus and species name is com uh, Coprinus comatus. And this Coprinus is in all of the Coprinuses uh, auto-digest. They all break down into ink, right? There's one though, it's called the alcohol inky. It's a uh, species of Coprinus that has, um, chemicals in it that uh, are, are not pleasant when mixed with alcohol. Uh, there's a drug called antabuse. That's exactly it, what I was going <laughs> to, it's funny that, <laughs> but yes. yeah, there's a, there's a drug called antabuse that's given to uh, people who are trying to recover from alcoholism and it's a medication that they take and they have no effects from it whatsoever until they drink alcohol. And when they drink alcohol, they become very ill. And then they associate that bad you know, illness with the alcohol. And so the uh, alcohol inky has that chemical in it. And so you got to be careful which coprinus you're trying to collect. Um, so now all of a sudden, these safe seven are becoming a little muddied, aren't they? <laughs> and so it's, it's something that you need to be uh, aware of. And oftentimes, like we as people, we're classic in that we think, ah, we, I know this stuff. I got it figured out. And yet you didn't know that there was an alcohol inky. You didn't know that there was this uh, drug that will cause you to be ill if you, you know, had a glass of wine with your dinner and you know, that type of thing. So there's so much going on in nature and it's so vast. It's so complex and there's so many things going on that uh, I am often find myself humbled by uh, any, anything going on in nature. I myself am an eternal student when it comes to nature. That's the yeah. way I like to look at it because I'm constantly learning. But so let's talk about... Even with shaggy mane or any of these mushrooms, you've got something that's considered the checkoff guide that you've come up with, and it's yeah. uh, pretty foolproof, but not not completely bulletproof. But at least it gets you dialed into what you where you're almost certain or positive of these mushrooms. Um, so one would be season, and then habitat. You know where the mm -hmm. mushroom is. I mean, do you want to keep go over those a little bit? Well, the season um, should be explanatory because if you're finding what you think are morel mushrooms in the fall, you're probably wrong. 
because they come out in the springtime right. or habitats important because these are very specific um, kind of um, uh, habitat organisms. In other words, they're only going to be on certain things. So for example, the oyster mushroom is always going to be growing on wood because uh, that's what it is. It's a staphrophyte and it's breaking down wood. Uh, whereas the morel mushroom is going to be always on the ground in the soils. And uh, so if you're finding a morel growing out of a tree branch, it's probably not a morel. So that's kind of the, the direction of these things go. And it may seem simple right now. It may seem fairly basic, but uh, a lot of people uh, seem to confuse these things. And if you just can say yes to each one of these things, then you're going to be a whole lot safer than, than what you uh, were. Let me, let me tell you a little story about um, myself. Um, I was out with two other, um, you know, I would, I would consider them expert mushroom um, people, uh, certainly know more than I do about mushrooms. And we were out uh, not collecting for the table, but collecting just for study and for learning uh, these things and finding different types of mushrooms, identifying them correctly and all that which involved uh, picking them up and handling them, but we weren't collecting any of them. We weren't bringing any home, if you will. And uh, uh, throughout the day when we were in the woods, um, occasionally I would pull out a, a field guide that I had, which has like very thin, thin paper uh, pages. And I was trying to, because my hands were dirty and all that, I was trying to turn the pages. And because I, I was having troubles turning the pages. I absent-mindedly touched my index finger to my tongue to moisten it to turn the page. And I did that once and I thought to myself, oh, you idiot, don't do that, <laughs> you know? And I, I was like, you know, just, that was dumb. <laughs> and so I identified what it was. We moved on a little bit later in the day. I did it a second time. Again, absent-mindedly just touched my index finger to my tongue just to moisten it to turn the page. And I thought, oh, <laughs> you idiot, don't do this, you know? And uh, sure enough, within a couple hours, I was flat out sicker than a dog. I mean, it was like holy mackerel bad. And, um, and, that, and that's kind of a, one of those things it's interesting that the deadly ones will take uh days for the symptoms to show up but the non-deadly ones you get sick fairly quick so the faster you get sick the the better you're going to be yes <laughs> mm -hmm. yep so um one thing that i know of and probably tell people about morels is uh Apple orchards, not a, that great of a place, especially if it's an older apple orchard with a bunch of dead apple trees, mm -hmm. not that great of a place to go mushroom hunting for morels. Uh, would you agree with that one there? Yeah, I would agree with you. A lot of people say that they're very good places. I, I have not had much success with those. So uh, I would agree with you on that, that the apple orchards don't seem to do very well for, for me, well, at least. that and on top of the fact that uh, morels are actually... Uh, pick up a lot of things that are in the soil and when they spray yes. used to spray the apple trees back in the day with the lead arsenic to uh, prevent the, the bugs from getting and eating the apples it's not so good to eat and you yeah. can actually poison yourself with morels yeah you can poison yourself with any of those um, ancillary uh, chemicals that are being sprayed in the environment yes um, so yeah you gotta be careful where you're collecting them from uh, things like that too so yeah. Um, there's other there's other edibles uh, out there that are that are kind of fun. Um, 
the puffball is an amazing mushroom. It, um, uh, when you collect it, uh, when it's you know ready to go, it's usually the size of a softball or even a soccer ball. They tend to be huge, round, white um, mushrooms that are really remarkable, you know. So with uh, the puffballs, they can be quite large. In fact, uh, size of a softball or up to a, a soccer ball even. And you know they're fresh when you cut them in half and they're pure white inside. So there's no yellow, no greening to them. There's no uh, kind of uh, wrinkling to them. They gotta be nice and firm and white. Uh, what's interesting about, uh, about these uh, gastromycetes, these are these, um, remember we talked a little bit about how the uh, uh, morel mushroom kind of gave off its spores in those little pits and ridges on the, uh, uh, on the cap of it. And then with the shaggy mane, we talked about how they turn to ink and that liquid then is passed on as uh, spores. Well, with the puffball, all those spores are inside. So if you were to wait and let that go to uh, maturity, it would turn kind of a yellowish green inside. And then when you touched it, uh, be millions, if not billions of spores would come puffing out of it, hence the name puffball, because they puff out with these uh, clouds of spores. And so you can see those spores because there's so many of them and they're all together. And now, so, but when you find it and it's pure white inside and a nice smooth texture, you can cut those like one inch thick and make little mushroom steaks out of them and uh, fry them up in a frying pan with some butter. Uh, be warned, though, they suck up a lot of butter, so, um, and you can make little steaks out of them and flip them and then uh, cook the other side of them, too. I oftentimes will um, dice those up, and um, when I dice them up, I cook them a little faster that way, too, and that works out nicely uh, for cooking the, the puffballs. Um, one of my favorite things to do with any of the wild mushrooms I get is to take the excess that I have and dry them. Uh, drying mushrooms is an easy process. You can do it in a variety of different ways. But this drying, I think, is the best way to store them long term. However, with the puffball mushroom, you don't want to try drying it. Because if you got one of these fancy food dryers and you kind of cut it up and put it in the food dryer, your house will stink of um, kind of smelly gym shoes. <laughs> They're just, it's just awful. So you don't want to do that. But you can dry your morels really nicely or uh, the shaggy manes, it's a little bit of a trick to try to dry those. Again, you have to turn them upside down, and then you can dry them. One of the simpler ways to dry any mushroom is to cut it up into small pieces. And then take those, don't, don't maybe take about a cup full and put it in a paper bag. And then take that paper bag and put it in a refrigerator. All modern refrigerators dehydrate. They take the moisture out of the air. And so within a week's period of time, you'll have a bag full of dried mushrooms in your refrigerator. And that's kind of a fun and quick and easy way to dry a lot of uh, mushrooms. Really? I did not know that. That's yeah. That's something interesting. Now, um, what about like a string method or hanging them to dry or something like that? I, I like the string method. You take a kind of a stout string and a fairly stout you know, needle and you kind of thread them on there. You kind of poke it through the mushroom and then you can hang it up. Uh, the only problem I have with that is that by the time it's dried enough, uh, which they dry out fairly quickly, especially if you put them in front of an open window or something like that, they tend to get a little dust on them, a little cobwebby, a little, you know. <laughs> and so, 
that's the only thing I don't like about that. Um, but uh, they, you can once they're dried, you can take these mushrooms and put them in a sealed glass jar, and that will those mushrooms will last a long time. Uh, and you can save them and reuse them later on. And you can reconstitute those mushrooms by taking a handful of those mushrooms and putting them in warm water. And uh, the water will soak back into the mushroom, rehydrating it partially. And then you can take those mushrooms, you squeeze out the extra water, and you go ahead and cook with them. Um, the best part about it is, is the water that you use, that warm water that you use to soak them in, is going to be a nice kind of a brown um of fragrant water, which you could use as a mushroom soup stock. So there's all sorts of things you can do there too. It's it's really mushrooms are a great thing to have and they're fun to have around and and they're you know tasty. Sometimes I reconstitute mine with with wine. There you go. Cook them, cook them in the wine, and use the whatever's left over in the pan and make a roux or different things. You now put, you're thinking. <laughs> put it over yeah. a piece of chicken with some nice morels, something like that. Oh. Yep. Loving it. Yeah. So, there. I mean, there's definitely a lot you could do. Uh, mm-hmm. Your book is a great book, especially for a beginner. So I do recommend that. It's Start Mushrooming the Reliable Way to Forage by Stan Tequila. And you could find it on Amazon, like you said. Um, it's, it's a good one. Uh, Stan, is there uh, anything else or a place that people can reach out and find you? Yeah, they can go to my website at naturesmart.com. Um, and, uh, there's, uh, a, a, a bi-weekly, uh, newspaper column that appears there. Uh, my books are listed there. I also, uh, have photo tours that, um, a lot of people like to, uh, learn about their photography by going out with me and I take them out for specific things. And there's information about my photo tours there. You can go photograph black bears with me or common loons, uh, these types of things. So there's lots of information at naturesmart.com. I like it. So before we get going here, I got to ask you, what is your all-time favorite mushroom and what is the recipe that you do with it? Well, for me, I really like the hen of the woods. Um, the hen of the woods is, um, is Graffola frondosus. It, it's such a wonderful um, uh, mushroom. It grows at the bases of uh, oak trees, maple trees. And it can be quite large. It could be, it's called hen of the woods because it looks like there's a, a chicken hen kind of crouched down, if you will. And so it grows about the size of a chicken, if you will. You can get about two, three pounds of mushrooms. It's got a great texture to it. It's firm. And um, it is, uh, it's got a great flavor to it. So you can, when you, like when you cook morels, they tend to get a little, eh, you know, soft, a little a little slimy and you know and a lot of people don't like that these things stay firm when you cook them and they're fantastic and i like to do kind of like a um, um of mushrooms with a white sauce on a fettuccine with them and uh, i really enjoy that type of uh, of cooking that sounds really good <laughs> i uh i actually i don't know if it was just because i ate absolutely so much of them but I uh, had a little bit of gastrointestinal discomfort from the last batch that I ate. And Hen in the Woods? Yes. Yes. So can we talk about that for a second or do we have to go? No, we can talk about it. Yeah, because it's interesting. All right. So um, people, that's a common problem if you eat too much of them. Mm-hmm. Now, plants are made of cellulose. Cellulose is a... Um, kind of a material that's easily broken down in our digestive system. 
Fungi, these mushrooms, are not a plant. They're component, they're mainly made of chitin. Chitin is the same material that your hair or your fingernails are made out of. And it is very difficult to digest. And so if you eat too much of them, you will get this kind of gastrointestinal upset and because you're having a tough time breaking them down. So you always want to eat um, moderate amounts. You don't want to overindulge in any of the mushrooms, too. So, And I believe that was careful. what happened because yeah. I've eaten them many times before without any problems. And uh, Yeah, it's a very, yep. very common problem. Yeah, but how can you not? Right, they're so good. <laughs> right, they're so darn good. I'm glad you. Uh, I'm glad you like the hen of the woods. It's uh, one do. of my absolute favorites. Uh, you yeah. know what the best part is? Is I'm already in the woods, Stan. Um, so I'm yeah. either I'm either early season scouting, or if it happens to roll into like this year, it was kind of unseasonably warm before that brutal cold snap, and we were all the way into um, towards the end of October, and I was in the woods hunting. I was deer hunting and still finding them. And so yeah. when I had a bad day deer hunting, it didn't matter because I still came home with a bunch of Hen of the Woods mushrooms. <laughs> yeah, I, I like them. They're some of my absolute all-time favorites. I still have to say the morels are my favorites, and I just like pan frying them. And if you get mm-hmm. a higher heat, I crisp up the edges a little bit, and it's like nice. got a beefy taste to it to me yeah. that is yeah. unlike any other. But yeah, yeah. I agree. Well, I appreciate well, good. yeah, I appreciate you for coming on. Is there anything else uh, you'd like to say or um... no? It's just I'll leave you with this: uh, there are old and bold mushroom hunters, but there are no old bold mushroom hunters. <laughs> Be careful out there. That's a good one. Thank you. I appreciate that. All right. Once again, thank you so much for listening to the Publicly Challenged podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show, and if you did, please subscribe on whatever platform it is you're listening to. Also, if you could leave a review, that would help us out. And you can check us out on Instagram or at publiclychallenged.com. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the show. are where you think they are. Any one of these casts could be the bite. It's the most exciting fishing that I know right here at Hawks Cave. Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment. Join Captain Justin Leake and Meredith McCord for the best fishing action along Panama City Beach. Tune in to Chasing the Sun every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.